when was the last time that you said to someone, you've got to see this? It's a phrase that we've all used, and I know that we've all done it. Whether it was that fateful phrase when we were kids on the bike and said, look, mom, no hands, you got to see this. And then disaster struck right afterwards. Maybe it was an improvement that you made on your house or a project that you did, and you're like, oh, you gotta, you gotta come see this. I just did this really cool thing. Maybe it was something you did on your yard. Maybe it was something that instead of you know, grabbing someone, whether forcefully or not, and kind of dragging them over to come see what it is that you're proud of, maybe it was something that you shared on your cell phone, as you're like, oh, you gotta see this. Did you know that on the Facebook platform alone, so no other social media platforms, there is an average of 4.75 billion things shared every single day. That is almost like half as many people as are on the face of planet Earth sharing things each and every single day. And I'm not even talking about Insta, Snapchat, TikTok, and all those other things that I'm kind of getting tired of, like how many of those there are. So we share things over and over and over again. Now, I will admit that I also like to share a lot of things. Many of you know that eight weeks ago, my wife and I had the most beautiful baby girl on the face of planet Earth. Yeah, clap for that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's just objectively true. That's not parental bias at all. Science is 100% going to confirm that she is the best. And I will fight you on that. Now, I am that guy that walks around and I really do try to wait until someone brings it up or asks about my baby girl before I start showing the pictures everywhere. And I'm like, ha, you fell into my trap. Now you get to see pictures of her doing cute things like you know, throwing up and making scrunchy faces and yawning and all that good stuff. And we're just gonna, you get to see all of it now because you asked. But I'm so excited to share because I just want you to experience with me how great she is. Now, we actually have a word in English and Western culture about um, what it is when there's an experience that you want everybody to share. Do you remember back in ancient America in 2019 when we could go to venues and events and things like football stadiums and movie theaters? That's called a spectacle. When you get everybody together, you get a big old crowd together to experience something. And actually, research has shown that when you are experiencing something, you're seeing what's going on with a large group, that actually what happens, and don't get too weirded out by this, but our brain waves start to sync up. And just like it's a shared experience that humans will have when we watch something together. When uh, the world changed in 2020, and um, I started to have a conversation with my wife about the fact that since movie theaters are closed, and we can't go out on date night, we need to invest in our home theater system, which means Andrew needs a bigger TV. <laughs> and I was informed, and I was like, no, honey, we need to invest in this. I was informed that no matter what pandemics hate the, hit the world, I am still going to take her out to nice places. 
which is a good thing. So, but spectacle, like we want to be a part of something. We want to see something together. And on Palm Sunday, 2,000 years ago, on the other side of the globe, the spectacle going on in Jerusalem was when a Nazarene carpenter who had been walking around as a rabbi for three years doing miracles and teaching rode into town and the whole crowd, everybody showed up to see it. Now let's pray before we dig into the scripture. Father God, we're going to ask that your spirit is here today. God, we ask that you would move our hearts to be closer to you. God, that we would see Jesus as the king that he is. And we just pray that your word would touch us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you brought your Bible or your device, you can look up John chapter 12, and that's where we'll be. Because as David already mentioned, today is Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is a part of the Christian calendar, which uh, maybe you're familiar with that phrase, maybe you're not. But I guarantee you that you know what the Christian calendar is. Because if I say the word Christmas, you've got memories. Because you've experienced one of the key parts of the Christian calendar. Uh, now, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but did you know Jesus was not actually born on December 25th? Please hold the tomatoes. No throwing anything at me. He wasn't. We remember the fact that Jesus was born on December 25th, and that's a part of this rich tradition that has guided the church for over a thousand years as different days call us to remember different parts of the biblical story. So here we are. Today is Palm Sunday, and it is the first day of Holy Week, a week that we set aside oftentimes in different traditions, in different ways, leading up to Easter. Next Sunday's Easter. This is Palm Sunday, and there will be different days. Maybe you're going to take communion as a family on Thursday night. Maybe you have a tradition of watching the Passion of the Christ on Good Friday. Whatever it is, this is a season where we focus in on Jesus, and Palm Sunday is a part of that. I grew up in church as a kid in the choir, and Palm Sunday, there was always something that involved palm branches and me waving them. So kids, you are welcome today that you are not waving palm branches in this service. But we're going to remember what happened at Palm Sunday. Let's start with John chapter 12, verse 12. So the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, so that feast is going to be um, the feast of Passover, where everybody shows up in Jerusalem. So the whole nation shows up in one town, one city, for one weekend together. And I'm sure there were no traffic jams involved in that situation. So they show up for the feast, and they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, before we just breeze past that, as maybe a story that you've read before, or maybe a story that you're like, okay, there's some details in here, like that's what you do in the Bible. You sit on donkeys, you throw down palm branches, and you say, Hosanna. That's how Bible people talk. Well, no, let's, let's not breeze past that to miss what's going on. So they're crying out this word, Hosanna. And that's, that's a word that in their culture started out as actually a cry for help. It means, save me. 
Imagine a bunch of people, they're shouting out, save me! Like, you're looking for the danger at that point, right? But what had happened is this cry of God, save me, had evolved into a hopeful declaration where they said, God will save me. And so they're crying out that God will save them. And this is a group of people oppressed by the Romans who are looking for a physical king in a physical kingdom that will overthrow and fix all of their problems and will overthrow the power structures that are oppressing them. And so they're crying out Hosanna, but notice who it is that they're crying Hosanna to. Maybe you remember from the Christmas story that right before Jesus is going to be born, the angel comes to Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents, and they tell them that they need to name him Jesus because that name means that God will save. And so his identity, and we, if we're going to be accurate readers of the Bible, we need to pay attention to these small things like that because they're crying out, save us, to the guy whose name is God will save us, and they're expecting something out of this. So here they are, and then Jesus sits on the colt, which, once again, don't just breeze past that because people sit on donkeys in the Bible, but rather understand that Jesus is declaring himself a king like David. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah, this important figure, would ride on a donkey because David and Solomon, the two best kings that Israel ever had, rode on a donkey into Jerusalem. And so Jesus is kind of declaring and letting them know something about who he is in this situation. I want you to imagine if there was a political candidate who decided that they were going to start their run for, for whatever office they were running for by jumping in a convertible car, driving past a grassy knoll in Dallas, Texas. That would mean something. There's some history to it. And Jesus is doing this action that means something and is telling them something about who he is. So everybody's watching this. Let's look at the groups of people that are watching what happens. Verse 16, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So we've got three groups of people. All of them are standing in Jerusalem, and they have eyeballs on what is happening. They are seeing the facts that Jesus is walking in front of them. But here's the deal. Nobody's really seeing who Jesus is. Nobody's really perceiving that the people, the crowd, are there because they see the miraculous king and they want to see more signs. Just a chapter earlier, Jesus has raised someone from the dead, which is kind of a big deal. And before we kind of pass that off as that's what happens in the Bible, just think about that for a second. You know, we have, if we had video footage, it was posted on YouTube that somebody raised someone from the dead here in Dallas, Oregon, I can guarantee you I would be investigating that this week. Like, I would want to see what had happened. So here they are to see what's going on. They're expecting Jesus to fix all of their problems, and the disciples just don't see. 
They're just kind of clueless to what's going on. They're there. They don't see how God is moving and God is working. And the Pharisees see Jesus as a threat. For three years, Jesus has walked around teaching, doing miracles, and there's kind of this cat and mouse game with the Pharisees and Jesus. It's almost like Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, where the Pharisees keep trying to trip Jesus up, and they'll try and, you know, lay a trap or a question and put it down for him so that he can finally say the thing that makes everyone dislike him and discredit him, and he's out of power. So for three years they've done this, and what has it benefited them? They say, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And I think of these people, the Pharisees are probably the most insightful because they realize that if Jesus is actually the king that everybody is saying he is, then their worlds are going to have to change. Their life is going to have to be different. Their power structure or their ability to sit on the control of their own life, the throne of their own life, and to be able to tell other people what to do, that's going to get broken apart if Jesus is actually the king. And they identify this as a threat. And then they say this one phrase, which I'm going to go Bible nerd for just a second, and you all are going to come with me on this, and that's how this works, because I'm on stage. Now, what they say is the whole world has gone after him, and then in kind of this like masterful literary transition, what John does is he then shows the whole world coming to Jesus. Verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. I'll just let the mic drop and let you have the reaction to that that you need to have. No, well, see, what we miss is the fact that in the Jewish imagination, in the, the concept of the culture at that day, there were two groups of people. You had the Jewish people, the covenant people of God, they worshiped at the temple, the in crowd, and then you had everybody else the whole world, and they would have used one word to refer to that whole other group of people, and they would have called them Greeks. So these people who are ethnically not Jewish, they are far away from the covenant community of God, they come to Jesus in the very next verse, and they come to Jesus with, they come to actually the disciple Philip. So these went up to Philip, who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, there's some cool stuff going on there with the fact that Philip has the most Greek name of any of the disciples, and I think we get his backstory here, the fact that he was from Bethsaida in Galilee, because he was probably in community or doing business with Greek-speaking people. He was very comfortable as a Jewish person interacting with people not from his culture who might not look or eat or just be exactly like him. So they come to Philip with this question, and then Philip went to Andrew, who has the best name of all the disciples, and Andrew went to Philip, and then they told Jesus. And they come to Jesus with a yes or no question. Jesus, we want to see you. We want to see Jesus. Now, the way that I picture this going down, okay, is um, Philip and Andrew, they're walking in towards Jesus, and they've got the Greeks, like, right by them as they're walking in. Now, you've also got the crowd and the Pharisees, and Jesus is kind of in the middle. Everybody's all around him, and this is how Jesus answers that question. Verse 23, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And I want to camp out on that word real quick, because 
Maybe you're understanding what is going to happen to Jesus this week. This is Palm Sunday, and the way Jesus is going to describe his next week, he uses the word glorified. Now, here's what's going to happen. Thursday night, Jesus gets arrested, having done nothing wrong. He gets beaten, brought to two trials where trumped-up charges are brought against him. The very next morning, Friday morning, the crowd that was crying Hosanna is now crying crucify him. As he is scourged, he is hung on a Roman cross, he is crucified, and he dies. And we're going to call that glorified? That's not the word I would use if I was in his shoes. But maybe you also know, next Sunday we're going to celebrate Easter Sunday and the fact that on Sunday, when the women came to the tomb to see the body, it was gone. That Jesus' work was finished. That when he died on the cross, it wasn't just a carpenter, a teacher, a rabbi on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago, but that actually God become a person, died in our place, making a way so that you and I can be brand new, that we can live in unity with God, which is like a really big deal. And that is why he's like, this hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, think about this for a second. The Greeks asked the question, can we see Jesus? That is a yes or no question. Do you want to go to lunch after church today? That is a yes or no question. Does Jesus give them a yes or no answer? No! Now what I think he does in this is he takes that as an opportunity to point out the fact the Greeks want to see Jesus, but Jesus points out the fact that nobody's really seeing him for who he is. In the middle of this situation, nobody is really perceiving. Their eyeballs are on him. They see him. They're in the city with him. But they don't get it. And so Jesus tells this story and this word picture to illustrate about the grain of wheat. And he's talking about how you guys are looking for something, but I'm a different kind of king. They were looking to Jesus as the answer to their problems. But Jesus is the kind of king who is the answer to the human heart. And so everyone's gathered around. And Jesus highlights the fact that they don't see him and instead offers them the opportunity. He says, I'm the kind of king who's going to die and put others first. I'm going to lay down my life. And I'm the kind of king where my followers have to do the same. Where Jesus is our example, if we say we follow Jesus, then we walk in his footsteps and we live the way that he lived. So what do we do with this conversation? It's Palm Sunday. I didn't make you wave palm branches and you're welcome for that again. But we did look at the story of what happened on Palm Sunday and how does that impact us living in 2021, sitting here 
online and in person, Dallas and Village Church on Palm Sunday? What does it mean that Jesus is king? I think our first thing that we get to wrestle with is how do we see Jesus? Are we in any of those camps where the disciples, they don't see what God is doing? The Pharisees, they see him as a threat to their comfortability, their way of life, the way they want to live their lives. Or the people who see Jesus as the answer to their problems. I have known people who have started to take some some baby steps in faith or maybe start coming back to church after a long time away. And it seems like invariably what will happen is they're going to get a flat tire. Or they're going to have some struggle, struggle at work. Or like one time there was a guy who started coming back to church and then that week just had nonstop nightmares. Because following Jesus is not always easy. It is always worth it, but it's not necessarily going to fix all of our problems as fire insurance for salvation. And so I'd encourage you, man, if if life is getting a little bit hard, that does not mean that God has left you out to dry. Jesus promised us, not that he would fix every problem for us, but in this life, we would have troubles, but as we go through troubles, he's there to walk with us through it. So Jesus is the type of king that causes us to die to ourselves, and we need to wrestle with that. Jesus is the type of king who is Lord of all of our life, and maybe there, we're like the Pharisees in just one area of our life, where we're like, man, I don't want to give up. I see this as a threat. If I gave up this one little area to God, what would he do? That, that kind of scares me. There's an interview with the psychologist uh, Jordan Peterson, who is kind of all over YouTube and not even a Christian or biblical person, but he was talking about how the fact that in the person of Jesus, you have both the narrative world or the big, huge story of God and morality and what God calls us to be, and then you also have some objective history and just facts that happen, and he was like, man, if those things ever intersected, it would need to change my life. And that's someone who doesn't even believe. Now, for those of us who do believe or say maybe we would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, at the intersection of Jesus becoming God and calling us to follow him, or Jesus being God and calling us to follow him, that should change our life. That should change the way that we live. So let's wrestle with the fact that Jesus is our king. And once we've made him king, let's talk about what kind of a kingdom this is. What kind of a king do we need to follow? Jesus is a king whose kingdom is open to everybody. I love the fact that God, that John puts this story right in the middle, right after Palm Sunday, where Jesus is talking to people who are outside of that Jewish faith or that Jewish kingdom. And I've talked to people who their accusation against the Bible is just how focused it is on the Jewish nation. They've read the Old Testament. They've looked at some of the stuff and they're like, man, how is this not just Hebrew propaganda? Because over and over again in the Old Testament, it's the story of God working through this one nation that messes up and they're humans and they have failures. But one thing that we don't always think about is the fact that we get these glimpses throughout the Old Testament that God's heart has always been for everyone and for the whole nations. When the nation of Israel starts in Exodus, there is provisions that God gives so that the Egyptians can join in 
when you've got the Assyrian general who needs to be healed, which is like the enemy and the bad guys at that point, God's heart is still for him. And so we can't, as Jesus followers, ever draw a line and say, that person is too far from God. That person has no place in this community. We never get to do that. Pastor Mike says it this way, that the church is an organization that exists for people who aren't members yet. We exist not just for who's in the room and who's on the stream, but we exist for our communities. In Dallas, in Adair, the people who are in the cubicles near us or next to us, or maybe in the pandemic world, you know, on the other side of the email from us, like our church, our community, we exist for them. Not just so that we can have a nice time on a Sunday morning. Pastor Don Wilson said it this way, Jesus' final command has to be our first priority. Jesus' final command to his disciples, go and make disciples. Go show them Jesus. Spread what I'm saying. That has to be at the core of who we are. That's why at Dallas Church, and maybe this is a small thing, but we have greeters and faithful people who smile and make this a great place to be. That's why we talk about the connections booth and the gift that we have for people every single Sunday, because we want to see you face to face and get some smiles and see your eyeballs over your mask. Like, we want to be a community where people are welcomed in. And that's who we're going to be. That's who Dallas Church is. That's who Village Church is. And then the other thing we see about Jesus' kingdom is that it makes us new. Last week, Ben talked about the new wine and new wineskins, where in faith in Jesus, there is something new that happens to us. And there should be a level where if we are following Jesus over a long period of time, people see the fruit of that in our life, where we start to change and to morph. I like to think of it as God kind of sanding off the rough edges, and I have a lot of rough edges in my life, and uh, God's doing a lot of work there. So, but we should be being made new. Paul said it this way later on in the New Testament. He's going to say, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. And there's a story where I was talking, talking to a pastor that really illustrates this. He was in the lobby one day and just talking with someone who started coming to his church. And he asked him, how did you find our church? Like, what was it that made you come through our doors? And this guy said, oh, well, you know Bill. Now, Bill's name has been changed to pr protect the innocent. Uh, but he's like, yeah, you know Bill? Bill was a jerk. He did not walk with integrity in his job or his marriage or his friendships. But what had happened was one day, somehow, someone brought Bill to church, and God got a hold of his heart, and he went all in with his faith, and God started to transform and change him to be more like Jesus. Not as a righteous, like, you know, you got to measure up and you got to do all the right things and check all the right boxes and look right and eat right and do all the right things, but rather because his relationship with Jesus was actually bringing fruit in his life. And so then this guy said, well, I saw what happened to Bill. And I said, I got to get in on that. I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be that kind of people. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus brought, where we are made new. Jesus talked about the seeds and the fact that a seed has to die. We have to die to ourselves in order for there to be fruit. Those of you who are gardeners in this room, 
How many of you would be disappointed if in springtime you plant a bunch of seeds, you spend all summer long weeding and tending and doing all those cool gardener things that make things grow that I don't know how to do, and then in the fall you go dig it up and you've got, yay, look, I've got seeds! No, like you either got really bad seeds or you are a really bad gardener if that's what happens. We have to be made new. And then Jesus' kingdom gives us a mission, a mission to live for day in and day out. And this is not the Tom Cruise, your mission should you choose to accept it. If you've said that you follow Jesus, you're already in on this. You already put on the jersey. We're already on the mission. Whether you are a pastor, an office worker, a construction worker, postal worker, full-time parent, we are all on a mission together to bring about the kingdom of Jesus, to share his love with those around us. And so maybe one thing that you can do, maybe this is what you need to do. I picked this up from someone where they have on a three-by-five card, they have a reminder. Now, sometimes I've seen this written like, I have a kingdom to advance. You know, if you really want to get like gutsy about it, like I'm a kingdom warrior, like if that resonates with you. But when you get up and it's cloudy outside and you don't have time to get your coffee and you go into the office, you go into work, you're next to that person that you're really not excited to be near. And you're kind of in the, the grumpy pants mode that day. You ever been in grumpy pants mode? Like I have. Maybe that three by five card could remind you, I have a mission. I'm a kingdom warrior. Like, I'm about this, not just for me. Now, sharing our faith has to be something that comes out of joy, out of our relationship with God. It cannot be something where we are just checking boxes, something that we feel like we ought to do, or, you know, good Christians maybe do that. It's got to be part of who we are. I do not have it on my to-do list that when I wake up, I have to show five people pictures of my baby girl. Like, that's not at all on my to-do list. I just do that because I'm so excited and out of the gladness of my heart, I want to invite other people to just rejoice with me about that. None of us should ever have, and none of us do ever have, on our to-do list, man, I gotta help Facebook hit those three point, you know, 4.75 billion. Like, I gotta do my part. No, we just find cool things and we share it with each other. I'm struck as I wrestle with this passage by the question that the Greeks ask. And this just reverberates in my brain and it probably will throughout the whole week. And um, they just ask that simple question. They say, we want to see Jesus. And I think that's a question that at some level almost every human heart is asking. They want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus, who he truly is. You think about it for a second. We've got the opportunity to have new life, forgiveness for our past, moving on, where God doesn't have a, a, you know, a to-do or a, like a list of all the things that we've done wrong, but rather where we are forgiven and given a cause, given meaning in our work, given a community where other people seek the good of each other and we're building each other up, that's the invitation of Jesus. And I don't know anybody who says, yeah, I, I don't want any part of that. So my big idea today, and really just what I want to leave us with, is let's help our neighbors see Jesus. Let's live in a way 
Let's talk in a way, let's work in a way that when people look at us or interact with us, that they're able to see Jesus. I'm going to define neighbors the way that Jesus did, and that's just the people around you. In your cul-de-sac, at your office, let's let them see Jesus. Now, here's an easy way to do that, and that is to invite someone to Easter next week. Easter is one of the easiest invites of the year. People are really likely to say yes, and so if God has someone on your heart, I'd encourage you, take the opportunity to invite them to Easter. Now, maybe that is bringing them to the Village Church or Dallas Church campus, Maybe that means that you're going to make a really good meal and have a really cool watch party with your family online. But it's also got to be more than just that. Helping our neighbors see Jesus is not just inviting them to church, and it's not just something we do at Easter. It has to be something that we are about in April, that we are about in July, that we are about in September and December and next April, because we're going to be a church that helps people see Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the life and the love that we find in you. God, I do pray that you would give us opportunities, that you would show us who we're already in community with, who we're already have a relationship with, that we can point to you. God, I pray that our relationship with you would make us new, that we would love you, and that when people look at us, they would see you. It is in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.